Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. This week's episode I want to think of as more of a teaching episode or a learning episode, uh, and that includes myself. I'm hoping to learn quite a bit uh, because something fairly drastic is happening in a section of the M&A market. If you've been listening to past episodes of the show, you know 2015 was the biggest deal volume year ever for M&A. And now here we are, like three and a half weeks into January, and suddenly the S&P 500 is down 10% already this year, and deals requiring a lot of debt, uh, leveraged finance deals, they're called, are uh, in big trouble. They may not happen at all, or some that are already in the pipeline are already being revised. So what happened here, and what are companies doing about it that still want to pursue M&A, but require big bank loans to do it. Uh, are they screwed or can they still do deals? We'll ask Ropes and Gray attorney Steve Rukowski, an expert on acquisition financing. He'll explain why the market has turned sour fairly suddenly and how this will affect deals in 2016. I think there are a lot of reasons why this has happened. Some are regulatory, some are market driven, some might even be company specific, but he'll get into exactly why there has been a, a, a fairly sudden turn. But first, it's time for our weekly segment, What's the Big Deal? And for this week, we turn our attention to two manufacturing giants that used to make a lot of stuff and now don't do nearly as much, Johnson Controls and Tyco International. And now they're merging in a $14 billion deal. I want to bring in two of Bloomberg's auto reporters, Jennifer Serain and David Welsh, who was also a longtime M&A reporter here before he got up and move to Detroit, where he's joining us by phone. Hi, guys. Hello. Good afternoon. So I remember Tyco as this huge company run by Dennis Kozlowski, who then, of course, went to prison for stealing millions of dollars from the company. Uh, what is Tyco now, and what is Johnson Controls? So Tyco is basically a, the company we're talking about that will merge with Johnson Controls, or, or JCI, as they, they say in, in Autoland and in Milwaukee. Uh, it's sort of boiled down to a home security and, and fire alarm technology business, quite a large one. But uh, the reason it makes sense for them uh, to merge with Johnson Controls now is Johnson Controls, their main business uh, is building technology, heating, air cooling, energy storage, any kind of technology you need to make a you know, big modern building. And uh, you put that together with what Tyco's got, and they think they can offer basically every technology solution once the contractor's gone and made the building itself. And um, JCI has stripped away a lot of its auto assets uh, over the past two years. Uh, so this is where, where they really see the growth and where they see the better margins and, and where JCI itself is headed. And so why are these companies merging? For Johnson Controls, it's, it was the final piece. They wanted to not only really become a building business after they spun off their automotive seating business, but they want more technology and bigger scale. That's that's kind of where everybody is. You know, the, the days of these big industrial conglomerates that made everything, and the only thing their various business lines had in common was that they made stuff in a factory, is kind of gone. Ingersoll Rand has a few disparate pieces that aren't really connected, but they've been selling assets off. GE has obviously been selling assets off and really focusing on power generation. And then you've got Johnson Controls that a couple years ago sold its automotive electronics business, which was really low-grade stuff like gauges and the dashboard and that sort of thing. 
then they said last year they'd spin off seating. So then you merge up with uh, the remaining business with Tyco, and you've, you've got a pretty well-focused building technology business. And Jennifer, there's also a tax reason to this deal as well, correct? Correct. Yeah, we they Tyco is um, technically headquartered. Its tax headquarters are in Ireland, and so with this uh, Johnson Controls, its tax headquarters will now be in Ireland. Um, they, so this is another inversion. Correct. Deal. Uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, I believe, both came out and publicly bashed this deal on on your basic inversion grounds. Yeah. And of course, Donald Trump on the other side, geo, leading GOP candidate, has also called for stopping these inversions. Do you guys get the sense that companies are trying to push these through? I mean, this is the second or third one we've talked about over the past two months on Deal of the Week. Obviously, Pfizer Allergan was the biggest one. Are companies trying to push these through because they think there's sort of a small window in order to get approved and, and, and the, the tide is turning against them politically? They have been for a couple of years. Remember, uh, about 18 months ago, President Obama moved to wall off, you know, through the Treasury Department, moved to wall off some of the benefits of a tax inversion deal. And there, there still are some. Uh, he, he basically limited a few of the ways you could you could shelter your tax dollars from uh, the, the IRS. But there are some ways you just can't. And companies who are trying to do this are, are afraid of a couple of things. One, they're afraid that Congress will finally take a look at all of this and really kind of cut some of the advantages you get from an overseas domicile. And then, you know, the other thing is you could simply, by changing the U.S. tax code, lowering corporate taxes, could eliminate the benefits of it. A lot of this stuff is going to take time. The government has never been able to find consensus between the two parties and move quickly on it. So if you're going to get benefits, even if you think it's only going to be two or three years, eh, you may as well try to get them now. Yeah, and I I know the Treasury has been talking about for a long time now adding additional um, measures to have these deals get approval and have the tax somersaults work the way they're supposed to. And so yesterday when I spoke to a couple of analysts about the deal, a lot of them said, you know, I don't think people are going to try and speed up anything, but maybe they won't announce a lot because they're kind of waiting for that other shoe to drop. David, is there any chance this deal gets nixed? There is some talk about uh, giving an antitrust review, but I don't think so. I, I think uh, it will pass antitrust, uh, the sniff test from the government. And uh, you know, unless there were something that happened really fast that would eliminate the tax benefits of it, I, I think it sails straight on through. And Jennifer, just to be clear, Johnson Controls is continuing with its plan to split off its auto seating operations, correct? Correct. That's supposed to be uh, finished up by the end of this year. And how big a business is that? It's uh, quite a big part of their business, and that's what made the valuation behind this deal so difficult when they're saying, oh, we're going to go ahead and, and do all of these valuation metrics based on our company as it is, uh, but also this we're spinning off a large portion of, of what we do. So good luck figuring out what that means. So David, what do you think? Do you feel like we will continue to see uh, a trickle of inversion deals all the way through the year until, at least the, in theory, there's some sort of stronger legislation, either out of, out of this administration or the next one, to really clamp down? I do, because there's been a threat of, of either cutting the benefits of inversion deals or ending them all together for, it's got to be four or five years now. And every time someone rattles the saber, it sort of temporarily slows down the number of inversion deals we see. But then once the threat sort of you know, wafts its way out of the room, 
they get the, the bankers and the companies looking for them get right back at it. You got to remember too, inversions are very complicated, and there are some other ways to to get the tax benefits without just changing the corporate domicile. And, and it's one of the reasons you see so many of them in the pharmaceutical business. If you change the domicile of the patents, in other words, if you base your R&D operations in Ireland or Holland or wherever they have a nice low tax rate, the products made with those patents can be run through those businesses and you get the lower corporate tax rate regardless of where the company is based. So you can see companies, and you've seen it in pharma, buy assets that are based somewhere else, not even whole companies. And there's no change of the corporate domicile but you still get tax benefits, and, and Valiant Pharmaceutical was the master at it. They were not only domiciled in Bermuda, Ireland, and Holland uh, using tax agreements in Canada, but they had patents based everywhere. Uh, do we know yet if Tyco, so Tyco is headquartered in Princeton, New Jersey, I believe. Do we know, are they keeping that headquarters and simply changing their tax domicile, or is that going to be shut down? It wasn't totally clear in the announcement yesterday what Tyco would be doing, but Johnson Controls seemed to indicate that they would maintain their Milwaukee, running things from Milwaukee, but the Irish tax gotcha. style. Jennifer Serene and David Welsh, Bloomberg reporters, talking about Johnson Controls and Tyco International in our What's the Big Deal? Thanks, guys, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so let's bring in Steve Rukowski, a partner at the law firm Ropes & Gray which is frequently used by the largest companies to prepare mergers and acquisitions. Uh, Steve's focus is complex leveraged finance. And he's going to give us a lesson, I hope, about what's going on with the high-yield debt markets right now. So, Steve, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Alex. So, but before we jump into what we're seeing right now, I was hoping you could explain exactly what your job is. Sure. So I represent um, private equity sponsors and, and other asset managers in connection with with debt financings for, for buyouts and, and other um, acquisitions. I, I also represent um, some private debt funds and, and alternative lenders on the lending side in connection with loan uh, originations and debt investments. And what does that mean when you say you represent them? Well, there uh, our clients include kind of a broad range of asset managers, and so we we advise them on the terms of the financing transactions that they're involved in. What type of advice exactly are are, are you giving them when you when you say you're advising them? You know, you're 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 not really a bank. You're obviously you're coming at this from the from the law perspective. So so what is the type of advice you're giving them? Sure. So we. You know, we'll um, assist them in in structuring and negotiating the terms of the financing that they are um, either uh, seeking to obtain in the market or, or providing as, as lenders. So uh, that typically would be a commitment letter and term sheet outlining the terms on which uh, the financing is being provided. And so we'll, we'll review those both from a legal perspective as well as from a market perspective. So in other words, you're sort of a helpful middleman between company and lender. That, that's an accurate description. Okay. I think we, we facilitate the transactions between the, the borrowers and the lenders. Gotcha. All right. So, so, so one of the, this wasn't our deal of the week this week, but it, but it was a, a very interesting happening last week. We saw Carlisle, one of the largest private equity firms, revise the terms of a deal that it agreed to earlier in 2015 for a company called Veritas, which was a spinoff of large company Symantec, which you probably know, a cybersecurity company. This was an $8 billion deal when it was announced. 
and the deal got revised downward so that Carlisle was actually only paying $7.4 billion. There were a few other tweaks to the deal as well. But it struck me as, the, as a good time to speak to you because I saw this and I sort of went, hmm, we, we just have had the biggest M&A year of all time, 2015. It seemed like boom time in M&A. And now we see a deal revised downward. And really the last time we saw this type of deal, a deal that was agreed to, that was revised downward, was about 2007, 2008 when we saw a lot of this. So my question for you is, is this a signal for what's to come in the leveraged finance market or what exactly is going on right now in the leveraged finance world so that some of these big LBOs are suddenly threatened? Sure. I mean, I, I think it's important to, to distinguish the Veritas um, deal from other types of, of acquisitions that are out there. That, that that was a going private transaction in which a public company was being acquired um, by a private equity f- uh, fund, essentially turning it from a public company to a private company. Those tend to be large uh, transactions with with several billion dollars of debt that needs to be placed into the, the capital markets, uh, the public capital markets. Um, those those transactions are. Um, entail a level of market risk that a lot of smaller middle market transactions don't have. Um, so, you know, I think the uh, reduction in the price and the struggles that, that the Veritas transaction had are ind- indicative of the increased volatility that the public capital markets are seeing. And why are we seeing this, Steve? In other words, what are the factors that have suddenly led? It seems fairly sudden. I mean, maybe it's been like this for a few months, where at least for the big deals, there has become a lot of nervousness. Is it that the banks, the lenders themselves are overextended? Is it the market volatility we've seen in the past month or so? Is it regulatory concerns? Is it everything? Sort of what what is leading to this? Well, you know, I think since the, the financial crisis um, that occurred in 2008, 2009, there've been, you know, there's been a, a uh, dramatic change in, in the in the financing landscape, um, and there are really three major factors. The, the first, as you mentioned, are in increased federal regulations of of, of banks, uh, and most significantly, uh, what's known as the leverage lending guidance, which uh, essentially um, provide you know federal um, guidelines for what uh, is is an acceptable leverage level for transactions um, and 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 other terms that that can be criticized if banks underwrite those sorts of transactions. So so banks are, are being you know, essentially squeezed uh, on the regulatory side. This means that, just from my understanding, it's basically the amount of debt that you can put on a deal. It's frequently used, uh, uh, it's sort of uh, X times EBITDA, or, or earnings before interest, depreciation, taxes, and amortization. And I believe the guideline is roughly six times that. Is that roughly correct? That's right. Now it's it's not a bright line, and there there are, there are exceptions that, or there's some you know uh, wiggle room around that, depending on the industry and and the, you know the the cash flow being generated by the companies. But that's that's a rough guideline that the regulators have have um, have circled around. Okay, so that's reason one. Let's get to reason yeah. two. So re- reason two is I I think you know there has been increased volatility in the in the public uh, debt markets, um, mainly the syndicated or institutional loan market and the high-yield um, uh, securities markets. Um, and that's mainly due to kind of the, in- due to the increased reliance um, 
that those markets have on retail investors. And retail investors means, you know, individuals who, who put their money into the public uh, debt markets through mutual funds, uh, um, high-yield funds, uh, you know, other forms of, 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 of vehicles in which they can participate in, in, the, in these debt instruments. And so retail investors are, you know, generally more fickle than, um, you know, longer-term players such as banks. And so the, the increased reliance on the retail investors has, has added volatility into those markets. So when there's a pullback, um, it can be very difficult to place the financing. Okay. And, and what's reason three? Uh, well, it's reason three is, is we've seen increased competition between uh, private equity funds and strategic buyers, and pub, um, mainly public companies themselves, in in competing for attractive targets for acquisitions. Um, so that's that's led to kind of a shortening of the the period in which the the financing can be placed, um, and you know, which which kind of adds an increased amount of, of execution risk on, on the transactions from a financing perspective. But it's your contention, to get back to what you were saying earlier, that, that these risks are uh, much more heightened for the big private equity takeovers rather than uh, the, the middle market deals. In other words, we're not seeing the same levels of fear or inability to get deals done in the middle market. Is that right? That's right, and then you know I think there's several reasons for that. One is you know the middle market transactions are tend to be smaller, um, and consequently they they don't need to raise many billions of dollars of, of financing. They can finance them with with perhaps only you know a few hundred million dollars uh, or, or less of, of financing, and th- that type of financing can um, be placed privately um, through. Uh, a combination of banks and and other institutional lenders, um, so there would be less reliance in the public uh, capital markets and the retail markets that I just described. For those big deals, the ones that do rely on the on sort of the big retail markets, uh, are, are there more creative ways that companies can get these deals done or find the financing rather than just the straight bank loan? Yeah, I mean, one kind of hy- hybrid structure we've, we've seen increasingly is on some of these lar- larger transactions where they do need to raise you know, a significant amount of debt is to bifurcate it between a, a publicly placed syndicated uh, uh, credit facility and a privately placed subordinated or, or, or junior tranche of debt. And so the first step would be the, the private uh, – Investors and, and uh, or group would be put together to, to commit upfront to to purchasing an, uh, uh, the subordinated tranche of debt, and then a smaller tranche would then be syndicated to the public capital markets. Is there an example so, of this? Is there a particular deal that comes to mind where th- we've seen this? There have been several. I I can't think of one off the top of my head, but it, it's it's becoming quite common for for deals to be structured in that way, where essentially you have a first lien. And a second lien tranche of debt. The second lien would be placed privately with a small group, and then the first lien debt would then be syndicated in, in a more traditional manner. And just for those that uh, maybe aren't quite as familiar with this market, what do you, when you say first lien and second lien, can you sort of explain that in layman's terms? Sure. So uh, the the debt we're we're talking about mainly is is secured debt. In other words, the the lenders have 
a security interest in the assets. So if the company were to file for bankruptcy uh, or be otherwise unable to pay back the debt, the lenders could then foreclose on the assets in the same way that, that you know, a lender can foreclose on, on, on a house if, if there's a default on a mortgage. So we're talking about secured debt. First lien debt would be the the where the lenders have the first claim to the proceeds from the sale of the collateral, and then the second lien debt would then uh, be entitled to any residual amount. Gotcha. First in line, second in line, basically, exactly. to collect on debt, right? So look, as you look at your own pipeline at Ropes and & Gray and then sort of look at the market broadly, uh, uh, what do you expect for the for for the remainder of 2016, or at least let's say the next six months or so? Uh, you know, are, are should should things be steady and and at least you know in in the middle market or the smaller large deals, we'll still see a lot of private equity action, or are we at risk for a big downturn in the amount of private equity deals we see? Well, it's, it's always uh, risky business to try to predict uh, the future. But I, I'm, uh, with that caveat, I'm, I'm optimistic for this year. And I think the, the pullback in the, in, in the stock market and, and um, you know, the, the reduction in, in purchase price on some of these transactions that we've, we've mentioned earlier, uh, you know, there's, there's a silver lining to that. And that is by reducing the, 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 the purchase price multiples that are, that are, being required or, or, or that these transactions are being priced at, you know, should make private equity buyouts and leverage buyouts more attractive to, to, the, to the private equity sponsors and also make them more financeable. As I said, I, you know, I think the other uh, factor is we're seeing proliferation of alternative lenders, non-bank lenders that have come, come into the middle market. Uh, and, 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 and Steve, what does that mean exactly? So if it's not a bank lending, who is it that's doing the lending? Well, so it would basically be vehicles, lending vehicles that are not regulated as banks. So, you know, uh, there's a range of asset man- management, uh, asset managers that, that traditionally have, in, have focused on investing in uh, in the equity side, private equity funds, for example, um, many of them have launched direct lending vehicles to uh, raise pools of capital that can then be be loaned into trans, you know to fund acquisitions by by uh, other sponsors or companies that are looking to finance acquisitions outside of the traditional bank market. Steve, I, I was looking at your your bio and I noticed that. We both went to the same undergraduate institution and then both got our MBAs at NYU. And I'm curious, how did you get into the line of work of leveraged finance? Sure. Well, I started my, my career at Cravath, Swain & Moore back in, in the 90s. In right. the I should mention days. you got your law school degree. I didn't get that. I went the journalism <laughs> route, but yes. Yeah, I uh, got a law, law combination law and business degree right. uh, from NYU after uh, uh, college at Harvard. Um, so I started at Cravath, focusing on mergers and acquisitions in banking, where we, you know, represented traditional money center banks. This was the early days of syndicated lending, and then in, in 2000, I switched firms and began focusing on representing private equity sponsors um, from the borrower side, as opposed to the lending side. And more uh, recently, um, as I mentioned earlier, some of these these private equity sponsors have been raising debt. Uh, dedicated debt funds or lending funds, and so uh, the pendulum's coming back, and then uh, probably more 50-50 now uh, representing 
these managers uh, on on the borrower and the lender side. Steve, uh, thank you very much for joining us. A very interesting look at the world of leveraged finance, something that I think has become a hot-button issue at the very top of the market, as we were talking about. And we'll have to see if some of these deals, maybe Solera, there's another big tech deal called Solar Winds. We'll have to see if those go the same route uh, as what we saw with Carlisle and Veritas, if they are revised or if they just sail through as written. Steve Rutkowski, a partner at the law firm Ropes & Gray. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Alex. So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed that. Maybe you learned something. Uh, you can expect more from Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real-time in future episodes. And until then, find us on the Bloomberg Terminal or Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes or Google Play or SoundCloud or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And also take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. And follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. See you next week. We are proud of our new and growing suite of original podcasts, all designed to help you navigate the complexities of business, the financial markets, and the global economy. Odd Lots, a deep dive into the intersection of markets, economics, and finance with Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway. And Benchmark with Dan Moss, Tori Stilwell, and Aki Ito, an informative, jargon-free look at the inner workings of the global economy. All three shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts for Android, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Terminal. Check them out and subscribe today.